Hello and welcome to Luther's Catechism Podcast, brought to you by The Way Church. I'm Pastor Matt Rothy. Luther's Catechism Podcast takes you, the listener, through Luther's small catechism in order to educate, encourage, and equip you in your Christian faith and for all your callings in life. In this introductory episode, we are looking at Martin Luther, the author of the small catechism. For those of you following along with me in your copy of the 2017 anniversary edition of the Small Catechism, published by Northwestern Publishing House, we are on page 20. If you do not have a copy of this edition, you can purchase yours at the following web address, online.nph.net. That's online.nph.net. Again, in this episode, I will read an introductory section or article of the catechism called Martin Luther, the author of the small catechism. Intermittently, usually after each subsection, I will pause our reading to offer some commentary or invite further reflection with some questions. So we begin with Luther's early life. Eisleben sits in the beautiful, green, hilly region of western Germany. Over 500 years ago, Hans and Margaret Luther moved to this small mining town because it offered excellent opportunities to make a good living. While they were there, the Luthers welcomed a son into their family. He was born on November 10, 1483, in a two-story house not far from the center of town. The day after his birth, according to the custom of the day, Hans and Margaret brought their newborn son to St. Peter's Church to be baptized. And since the baptism took place on the festival of St. Martin, Hans named his son Martin. A few months later, the Luthers moved again, this time to Mansfeld, in the heart of the copper mining region. It appears that the move provided just the chance for advancement that Martin's father Hans desired. By the time Martin started school, his father was a respected citizen in Mansfeld. Martin was a diligent student. He demonstrated a keen mind and the ability to excel in his studies. Hans was proud of his ambitious and intelligent son and had great expectations for him. When it came time for the university, Hans paid for Martin to attend the university in Erfurt in order to become a lawyer. In fact, he purchased a set of law books for his son as an encouragement and a proof of his approval. End quote. Now, this section highlights the sort of basic early biographical facts of Martin Luther's life, his birth date and place of birth. But it also gives us brief insight into Luther's upbringing, particularly the influence of his father. Now, his father Hans was described as proud of his ambitious and intelligent son and had great expectations for him. Some biographies will describe the expectations that Hans had for Martin as being imposed on young Martin and done so in a somewhat oppressive and at times exasperating manner. Some historians go so far as to suggest that Hans was heavy-handed or even abusive. And the result? Well, this is how Martin came to fear his heavenly father. People will psychoanalyze Martin in this way. Other biographies offer a different picture. 
They say that Luther grew up in a very normal middle to even upper class home due to the hardworking and ambitiousness of his father. What they say is that Hans provided quite well for young Martin and fostered a home in which religion was important and prioritized and even allowed for certain privileges to be enjoyed, including that of further education. Regardless of which historical narrative you believed or is true, here's three questions I'd like us listeners to consider and discuss. First, if you are a parent now or you aspire to be a parent one day, what effect do the expectations you place on your children have on the formation of their spirituality, the formation of their Christian faith, their conception of how they see God? One follow-up question to consider might be this. How does the atmosphere of your home, your family culture, encourage those in your home to grow in their Christian faith and in godly wisdom? Is faith and the Bible something that is read and talked about? Here's another follow-up. Hans was said to be proud of his ambitious and intelligent son, Martin. Let me ask you this, parents especially, for what sort of things do you communicate to your children that you are proud of your children? Is it their ambition, their intelligence? Is it their looks? Is it their accomplishments? Is it their efforts? Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with with any of those things, if that's your answer. But let me ask you this. Do you tell your children, parents, that you are proud of them and their God-given faith and their love of Scripture, their love of Christ and fruits of their faith, their example of godly living? Do we tell our children that? That's the first question that parents or aspiring parents should consider, how we raise up the children in our home. The second question, this one is for all of us parents, children, and everybody else. Let me ask you this, how did the expectations placed on you as a child, how did the parents that you had and the home that you grew up in shape you Spiritually speaking, something to consider. And it, and it leads us to our third question, a final question that before I do, I'll offer a bit of a disclaimer, if you will. I don't suspect or assume that you were taught or influenced to believe wrong things at an early age in your life. But it's possible, of course. So here's the question. What do you believe now that's based primarily on the way you were brought up or the people who brought you up rather than on scripture. Here's what I'm getting at with this question. If there might be something that you hold on to, something that you may have been taught at some point in your life, I'd like to encourage you to examine those beliefs in the light of scripture. Take that idea captive to Christ, as scripture says. Hopefully this podcast, which will take you, the listener, through Luther's small catechism in order to educate, encourage, and equip you in your Christian faith, hopefully this podcast affords you the opportunity for that level of self-examination. Okay, let's continue with the next section. Luther becomes a monk. But something troubled Martin. He was sensitive and wondered if he was good enough for God. 
After a visit home, Martin made his way back to the university. Whether he noticed the sky or not along the way, the weather began to change. He quickened his step as he heard the thunder rumble in the distance. The storm was moving quickly in his direction. Then suddenly it broke and he found himself in the middle of a fierce storm. A flash of lightning and the crack of thunder were so near he thought he would die with the next flash and crack. In desperation and panic, he prayed, Saint Anne, help me. I'll become a monk. The storm with its flashes of lightning and cracks of thunder changed his life. In the days that followed, Luther wondered if his vow, I'll become a monk, came only from a spur-of-the-moment panic. But finally, it didn't matter. He decided to fulfill his vow. He became a monk and believed that if he was diligent in his fasting, vigils, prayers, confession, and study, he would make himself good enough for God. He believed that God welcomed only people who made themselves good and that God was angry with everyone else. So Luther sought to offer God what the church demanded. He worked hard to become the perfect monk so he could change God's anger to love. End quote. Now, the storm story that is covered in this section is quite famous in Lutheran circles, but it often leads us to the conclusion that this was, in fact, a spur-of-the-moment decision that Luther made to become a monk or, or a vow he made in, in the heat of the moment, and it could be. But what we also know is this, that for some time before this storm, Luther had developed an interest in theology. He stuck to his studies to become a lawyer for fears of disappointing or angering his father Hans, but the truth that we know is he wasn't really that engaged or enthralled with the idea of becoming a lawyer. So, there's some historical background there. But in this following and subsequent subsections, we're going to get into the wrong theology that Luther was starting to try to correct in becoming a monk. But for now, I want you to note this. Even here in this section, we see the development of a Lutheran distinctive, the doctrine of vocation. We see Luther wrestle with the decision of becoming a monk and serving God in that way, trying to earn God's favor in that way, or serving God as a lawyer or any other profession. What is the doctrine of vocation or that concept? Well, the word vocation is from the Latin root for called out. One's vocation refers first to the fact that God has called you out of our sinful world into his family. And the second idea with vocation is this, that God has placed you back into the world to do work for him in various roles, whether that's as a wife or a husband, mother, father, son, employee, employer, artist, craftsperson, citizen, neighbor, you name it. That's vocation. Let me unpack the idea of vocation just a little bit more with a quotation from a book that I highly recommend called Vocation, The Setting for Human Flourishing by Michael Burke. Now, this quotation gets at the theology that Luther was, was wrongly believing at the time, and also you're going to see the right theology develop throughout our reading of this article and also 
obviously the history of Luther's Reformation. So here's the quotation from Vocation, the Setting for Human Flourishing by Michael Berg. Our vocation comes directly from our justification. The righteousness of Christ frees us from being curved inward and propels us outward toward our neighbor in vocation. Vocation assumes freedom from the burden of pleasing God. If the Christian's time and energy are exhausted in an attempt to earn favor with God, there's nothing left for the neighbor. It is true that vocation is in the realm of the law. It is how God uses Christians to love the world. My work in vocation is not how I am saved. Vocation is not gospel. Vocation is not for heaven. Yet vocation is only possible because heaven is secure. Only the justified in Christ can work with Christ in the Father's economy of love. God's grace empowering us to love our neighbors through the simple acts we do daily. That is vocation. End quote. I wanted to read this quote here because what you see from from this explanation of vocation is that Luther's understanding of the biblical doctrine of vocation, well, it blew up the entire monastic system. Luther became a monk, and he became a monk why? Well, it said to earn favor with God, to try to do things, prayers, fasting, vigils, you name it, even, sadly, inflict pain on himself to try to earn favor with God. And what did that do? Well, it exhausted his time and energy and there's nothing left. There's nothing left for him to serve his neighbor. There's nothing left for him to be a son, for him to be a lawyer, for him to do any other profession, for him to be a spouse, a father, nothing because he was curved inward. But what the righteousness of Christ does, and this is what we're going to see in our upcoming sections, is it frees us It frees us from being curved inward, and as the quote said, propels us outward toward our neighbor. Vocation assumes that we are free from the burden of pleasing God. And this is what Luther at this time did not understand, that he was justified or declared not guilty by his sins because of free act of God's grace. And so he toiled away. But what we see in our next subsection called Luther Discovers the Gospel is he is slowly, over time, freed, although the truth is he was free all along. The next subsection, Luther discovers the gospel. In spite of all his efforts, Luther was still troubled. He found no peace. As he punished himself with fasting and work, hope slipped away instead of growing. All he did was not enough. No matter how hard he tried, his troubles led him to his superior, John Staupitz. He advised Luther to turn only to Jesus Christ for peace and comfort. I'm going to pause here, and this is the only commentary I'm going to offer in this subsection. But what you see right here is the beginning or the seed of the Reformation and of biblical Lutheran theology. Think about that. John Staupitz, who was certainly not Lutheran. He was a Catholic monk at Luther's monastery and the head of it. But what he did was he offered him true peace. 
peace that only comes from Christ. Now, note now that still he is not Lutheran, if you will, in his approach, but I want you to see how he is being influenced. He's being influenced, yes, by the opportunities that come up in his life, as we see in this next section. But what I want you to know as we read on here is how God used this servant of the gospel, Martin Luther, and directed his life for God's good purpose. Listen to what happens next. Now, the advice from John Stalpitz helped. But in those early days, Luther was still confused. In order to help Luther, Staupitz sent him to Wittenberg to teach at the new university established by Elector Frederick the Wise. Now, his name will come up later. Just wait. There, Luther read, he taught, and he thought. He lectured on the Psalms and eventually on Romans. His study of Romans was a turning point, much like the storm that had led him to become a monk. His study turned his thinking away from the angry God of the thunderbolt. As Luther studied Romans, he learned that what God required does not come from what he did or what any sinner does. It is something entirely different. God freely gives the sinner what is required for the sake of Christ. Luther had realized all his efforts were not good enough. Now, he found that the Bible says that God gives sinners the perfect and complete good that Christ achieved. God simply declares humans good, perfect, and holy because Jesus suffered and died for them. They possess the goodness of Christ by trust, by faith in God's promises, and not by what they do. End quote. Again, you see what's happening here. Seeds of the Reformation are being planted in Luther's heart and in his mind as he does what? As he goes to God's word. As he himself studies and then teaches on Psalms and Romans. And that brings us to our next section, which is called Luther Bases Everything on God's Word. Then came another turning point. While Luther's studies were deepening, his understanding of God's grace, John Tetzel appeared. Tetzel received authority from the Roman Catholic Church to sell indulgences to raise money. Indulgences were official documents of the Roman Catholic Church that promised to release those who bought them from the obligations required by the church. As Tetzel traveled in the Holy Roman Empire, he boasted as soon as the money clinks in the chest, the soul flits into heavenly rest. Selling indulgences challenged Luther's new thinking. Could Christians offer a gift in order to, re to remove the church's requirement of satisfaction for sin? Could they buy peace, hope, and forgiveness, even heaven, when they paid for an indulgence? Luther objected. His 95 theses challenged the abuse he saw. Through his theses, he wanted to discuss and debate whether the church could sell indulgences and whether or not indulgences could help someone get into heaven. The resistance from the Roman Catholic Church came quickly. 
Now, pause here, because what you see in Luther writing the 95 Theses is that he did not set out to start a Lutheran denomination of Christianity. No, what he wanted to do simply was discuss and debate what the church was doing with indulgences. Still, at this point, he wasn't even interested in reforming the church. He was looking for a discussion, a debate. The resistance from the Roman Catholic Church came quickly. Luther was summoned before Cardinal Cajetan in Augsburg to withdraw his objections. Cajetan, one of the leading theologians of his day, pointed out that the decrees and the pronouncements of the popes supported the teachings of indulgences. Luther was wrong, he said, for objecting to the teachings of the church. But Luther realized that the revered cardinal had no scriptural proof for the practice. Luther wrote, Nothing is mentioned in the Holy Scriptures about indulgences. The Scriptures commend faith and are as devoid of references to indulgences as they are full of teachings concerning faith. Luther based his teaching on God's Word, not on human decrees. So he moved on unconvinced and undaunted. In addition, Luther's understanding of the gift of God through faith in Christ provided him the courage to write and object even more. He was sure that the Bible was more important than what any human said. A little later, the emperor, Charles V, summoned Luther to Worms to retract his teachings. Luther stood before the emperor, the princes, and many leaders of the Roman Catholic Church and confessed, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of sacred scripture or by evident reason, since I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for it is evident that they have contradicted each other, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything. For to go against my conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. The important truth. Teaching must be based on the Bible, motivated Luther and guided his thoughts for the rest of his life. But he left worms an outlaw. The emperor signed the Edict of Worms, which was a warrant for Luther's arrest and capture. The edict also threatened anyone favoring Luther and his works in any way. End quote. So we've already noted that Luther did not start out to start any kind of denomination or Christian sect. He wanted to debate theology, teaching of the church. He wanted only later, as we'll see, to reform the church. We will, throughout this podcast, deepen our understanding in the theological and biblical significance that's taking place here along Martin Luther's journey through the Reformation. But what I want to point out in this subsection is this, Luther's confidence. Now, we passed over what occurred in somewhat of a cursory manner for the sake of this brief introductory article, but the significance of Luther standing before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, we can't miss it. Here's what took place, little more detail. 
What was going on was the Diet of Worms. A diet is simply an assembly or a major conference of the Holy Roman Empire. It was held in Worms in Germany in 1521. Now, because Luther had confessed all of these things that were antithetical to the church's teaching at the time, Luther was called before political authorities rather than the Pope or a council at the time to take his teachings back, to recant them. What had happened leading up to 1521 is Pope Leo X condemned 41 of Luther's 95 theses. He gave Luther time to recant, but he later sent Luther uh, a letter, uh, a bowl, saying that he was in the wrong, and Luther publicly burned the papal bull and refused to renounce his teachings. The result? Luther was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church in January of 1521. Now, while the emperor should have then arrested or maybe even executed Luther, there was a heavy influence. Remember, I said we'd get back to elector Frederick the Wise before. Well, he was led to defend Luther, or at least defend him to the point where he would get a trial or a hearing at the Diet of Worms. And that's what took place. Luther went before the Diet. In response to his questioning, Luther admitted that the books that were set before him were his. And when he was asked to take them back, he asked for time to consider the question. The next day, again before the assembled diet there, this conference led by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, Luther refused to recant from his works. And I read that quotation that is attributed to Luther at the time. Very famously, he said, here I stand, I can do no other. Here's my question to you. Where do you get the confidence to do something like that? Where do you get the confidence to go against the grain of culture? Where do you get the confidence to stand up to, quote unquote, the powers that be? Answer, it comes only from the conviction of standing on God's word and his truth alone. It doesn't happen if we're just standing on our ideas or our parents' ideas. It doesn't come from our friends' affirmation or culture's affirmation. No, the conviction to do something similar to what Martin Luther did comes only from God's word. So here's an application question. What fears are you wrestling with in your life right now? More so, consider this. How would going to God's word and standing on his promises address and really dissipate your fears? It's worth our consideration. It's part of our Lutheran heritage to go to God's word as we wrestle with true fears that we have. Our last section is a longer subsection, but we'll pause only briefly throughout to offer commentary. The section is called Luther Continues to Write and Teach. On the way back home from the Diet of Worms, Luther was suddenly abducted by a band of horsemen, but they were not agents of the emperor. Instead, Frederick the Wise had ordered his men to take Luther into protective custody. They led him off that night to the Wartburg Castle. For the next few months, Luther grew a beard and learned the ways of a knight. 
to all at the castle, he became Knight George. For Luther, this became a time to write. He sent his writings back to Wittenberg, where they were published. The most important task Luther began while at Wartburg was the translation of the New Testament into German. He wanted to put the Bible into the hands of the common people so they could read it for themselves. Luther wrote, When you open the book containing the Gospels and read or hear how Christ comes here or there, or how someone is brought to him, you should therein perceive the sermon or the Gospel through which he is coming to you, or you are being brought to him. End quote. After about a year at the Wartburg Castle, Luther returned to Wittenberg. The Edict of Worms still condemned Luther as a heretic and guilty of high treason. But the truths of the Bible were more important than even life itself. Luther did not look over his shoulder. His faith drove him forward. Luther's ideas spread quickly throughout Germany and throughout Europe. He continued to write. So the presses all over Germany and Europe printed more, and people read more. But his ideas were not new. He tested his ideas and compared them to the Bible. He wrote what agreed with the Bible. Many theologians of the church throughout the ages also believed the same things Luther confessed. Luther and many who agreed with him felt it was time to bring the Christian church back to what the Bible said, time to reform the church. Pause for a moment here. Now, throughout the reading of this article, I've pointed out times throughout the Reformation history that Luther wasn't looking to reform. He was merely looking to discuss or debate certain points of doctrine. Now we see it is time. Luther determined that it wasn't in the interest of the Roman Catholic Church to to go back to the foundational truths of Scripture. So he set out to reform, and he did so mainly through his writing. Another note and a point of interest that I want to share here is how the spreading or the quick spreading of his writings came about. Shortly before the Reformation, the printing press was invented. And what is very interesting is how Luther intentionally utilized this new technology to spread the gospel. One book that I'd highly recommend you read is entitled Brand Luther by Andrew Pedigree, and it traces out the Reformation history alongside of the developments of this new innovative technology that we know of called the printing press. We continue on. Luther became a magnet, drawing people to Wittenberg to study and learn. The university grew in spite of the threat of the edict. Together with his co-workers in Wittenberg, Luther finished translating the Old Testament into German so people could read the entire Bible. His writings were eagerly read, not only in Germany, but all over Europe. Luther's collected works were packed in the goods that were traded and shipped even to England and Italy. He had two central thoughts. The Bible is the only authority for what we believe, and God declares the sinner good and righteous by grace through faith in Christ. 
Humans cannot earn the status by their good works. His thoughts, Luther's thoughts, are summarized by three short phrases, by grace alone, by faith alone, and by scripture alone. Pause here. You might often have heard of the solas of the Lutheran Reformation. These are them. Solas is the Latin word that means only, as we just read, or alone, as we just read. So we read sola gratia, sola grace, sola fide, sola uh, faith alone, and sola scriptura by scripture alone. We continue on. Luther wanted to make sure that everyone understood God's promises and truth. When he saw how many did not understand the Bible, he also wrote the small catechism. It is a simple outline of what the Bible teaches. The small catechism wasn't anything new, only what God's people believed and taught for centuries. It includes the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, Confession and Absolution, and the Lord's Supper. Luther's small catechism also includes a table of duties as a guideline from the Bible for Christian people, husbands, wives, parents, children, employees, employers, and others. The Bible teaches that God gives every man, woman, and child a role to play in their lives. Pastors, teachers, clerks, shoemakers, farmers, butchers, barbers, and students all serve God. Luther wrote, Here faith is truly active through love. Galatians 5, verse 6. That is, it finds expression in works of the freest service, cheerfully and lovingly done, with which a Christian willingly serves another without hope of reward. And for themselves, they are satisfied with the fullness and wealth of their faith in Christ. End quote by Luther. Pause for a moment here just to point out that the initial uh, doctrine we discussed at the beginning, the doctrine of vocation that that you could see applied to Luther's situation or crisis moment, do I continue studying to be a lawyer or do I become a monk? Here you see the full actualization of that theology put, put to paper and also put practically in the Lutheran catechism and in the lives of God's people. We'll continue reading. When people came to listen to Luther and the other reformers, they were encouraged to let their lights of faith shine in their daily lives. In other words, to love others just as Christ and the apostles had taught. Throughout his later years, Luther taught and wrote a great deal, volumes and volumes. He never tired of helping people understand what the Bible taught. Pause here for a moment. Uh, there's a story that goes that Luther was asked if all his work should be destroyed, uh, which two should remain. And he said all the others could be burned, but he wanted just two to remain. One is a book called The Bondage of the Will. Here in this book, Martin Luther argued that people can receive salvation or redemption only as a gift from God. They could not choose to receive this gift or choose it for themselves. People cannot choose between good or evil. People cannot choose to believe through their own willpower, but only as a gift from God. 
Bondage of the Will was published in 1525, and it was Luther's reply to Erasmus, a theologian and academic of the day, who wrote a book called On Free Will, which Erasmus wrote the year prior as an attack on Luther and some of his ideas. So Luther asked which two books should remain or he wished could remain. Bondage of the Will was one. The Catechism was the other. We'll conclude this article by reading, Luther himself lived like anyone else. He married a former nun, Catherine von Bora. They had six children and lived in Wittenberg the rest of Luther's life. Late in January 1546, Luther traveled to Eisleben, the town of his birth, to help settle a dispute there. But while he was in Eisleben, he became sick. He died on February 18, 1546. On his deathbed, his friends asked him if he was willing to die still confessing the doctrine he spent his life teaching. He answered clearly, yes. His body was taken back to Wittenberg and laid to rest under the floor of the castle church, just in front of the pulpit. Luther may have stood alone at Worms, but he did not remain alone. Many joined him. Many still join him in protesting teachings that violate the scriptures. We are among them. We believe that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, on, a Christ, on account of Christ alone. Those are the teachings of the Bible, and we are captive to the word of God, the scripture alone. Here we stand. God help us. Amen. I hope you enjoyed this introductory episode, a reading of an article that is all about Martin Luther, the author of the Small Catechism. Again, this podcast follows the particular edition, the 2017 anniversary edition published by Northwestern Publishing House. You can purchase your copy of this edition of the Small Catechism at the following web address online.nph.net. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Luther's Catechism Podcast brought to you by The Way Church. I'm Pastor Matt Rothy, and I look forward to seeing you in future episodes.